Heket is one of the goddesses of the Egyptian pantheon of gods. And this god is depicted as a woman with a frog's head. It was understood that she was responsible for breathing life into the nostrils of bodies that her husband, Kunum, had created from the dust of the ground. Now, you'll notice some of that language is familiar to Genesis 1 and 2. That, you know, if you go back and you look at um, ancient gods or ancient mythology, uh, a, a lot of their stories are very similar to the biblical narrative, to the biblical text. And that makes complete sense, that these stories would be deviations from the truth. And that's exactly what we see here. But she was responsible for breathing life into the nostrils of bodies that her husband created from the dust of the ground. And it was said that she also assisted in the delivery of children or the delivery of babies. Uh, This goddess represented fertility and, as I mentioned, had a frog's head because at certain times during the year in Egypt, there would be an increase in the population of frogs around the Nile River. Because of this, she was eventually named and coined the fertility goddess of Egypt. Well, it was this god, this deity, and several others in Egypt that were obliterated by the one true God, Yahweh, uh, during the events that we know as the Ten Plagues. And the passage that we come to today in our ongoing study of Exodus, God orchestrates a plague of Egyptian frogs. So in our verses, for the second time at the command of God, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and they ask him to release the Hebrews from slavery. Uh, But as we'll see, Pharaoh refuses and God responds with the second plague, uh, a plague of frogs. Now, in these verses and in this particular plague, God continues to reveal himself to Pharaoh and others so that we will know, and they surely knew, that our God, the God of the Scriptures, the God of the Bible, is the one true God, the only true God. And we know him from Exodus 3 as the I Am or Yahweh God. Now, before we actually get into this narrative and this plague, uh, I, I want us to consider, consider several key observations about the plagues, about the plagues. So as we study the plagues, and we'll be doing this the rest of this year and on into January, so we're sort of slowing down our study a bit to examine these plagues almost one by one, but these observations will help you sort of navigate through the plagues and see what is trying to be conveyed sort of behind the scenes. Well, first off, and I've put these on your notes to some degree, every plague is introduced with the formula Yahweh said to Moses. Every single plague. Now, why is this? Well, because Moses, as he narrates the story, he's trying to inform us that it is God, the one true God who is in complete control. That these, this isn't natural phenomena, these aren't natural disasters, but in fact, the working of God alone. He is responsible. 
So you'll see that for every plague. So notice that as we go through these. Secondly, every plague ends with a comment about Pharaoh's heart. Again, you're familiar with uh, the plagues and this story and these events, but they begin with God and they end with the condition of Pharaoh's heart. Secondly, or thirdly rather, every plague seems to deal with a demonstration of power over specific Egyptian gods. Every plague seems to be dealing with that. Now, there's a lot of scholars and commentators that take the route that suggests that every single plague is basically attacking an Egyptian god and showing God's sovereignty and authority over that god. That is true to some degree. That is there. Arnold mentioned that last time. So that is true, and I think it's well represented to say that. But it's also true that the plagues show God's superiority over all the gods in general. People looked at Pharaoh as a representation of a God, and he was supposed to keep order across the land. Well, as you'll see over these nine months that the plagues roll out, everything across Egypt, it's everything but order. It really is chaos uh, to one degree. Next, another observation, every plague generally trends towards greater intensification and gets progressively worse. That's the general trend that, that we'll see. Now, of course, you know this, but it begins sort of with irritation and then moves into the destruction of land, then ultimately it ends with death. So there's a, a general trend as we work through the plagues of, of ongoing intensification. Now, how do we see this? I want to give you just a few details that will help you map out how we see this. First off, Pharaoh's varying reactions to the plagues. This is interesting. Again, I want to mention these now. That way, over the next several plagues, you can see this. Pharaoh, in one sense, has no idea what to do. <laughs> no idea what to do with this. And he sort of sidesteps his sorcerers and the magicians. Oftentimes, he will just lie. Hey, I'll let the people go, right? And then he doesn't. We'll see that today. <laughs> So Pharaoh's reactions just get wild, which helps us understand how worse the plagues get. Next, Pharaoh's hardening of heart. His hardening of heart. As the plagues intensify, so does his hardening of heart. Thirdly, the sorcerers cannot mimic or reverse the plagues. This also shows how the plagues continue to get worse and they intensify. The sorcerers cannot mimic nor reverse the plagues. In fact, they themselves become greatly affected by them. And you can jot this down. I don't think it's in your notes. It might be. That in Exodus 9, 11, when the plague of boils hits, they can't even stand up. They cannot even stand up. So here in the first few plagues, they're sort of hanging around trying to copy or, copy or mimic uh, the plagues, but later on down the road, uh, they, they can't even stand. They cannot stand. And then lastly, that sort of helps us understand this intensification is the transition from Aaron to Moses' actions. 
Now you'll see all throughout this narrative that it goes back and forth between Aaron and Moses, Moses and Aaron, Aaron, right? It goes back and forth. But by the time you get to the end of the plagues, Aaron is sort of slipped out of view, although he's there, and Moses comes to the fore. So it's all of those reasons why we think that the plagues intensify as they go along. And those are several ways to, to help us understand that. So the first plague has hit, and we studied that last week. God has turned the waters of the Nile to blood because of Pharaoh's refusal to let the people go. In addition to the Nile, we are told that all the water sources in Egypt were turned to blood. But such mighty acts by the hand of God did not sway Pharaoh to let the people go, but rather his heart was hardened And he ultimately, according to chapter 7, verse 23, he wasn't even concerned with what was happening. He he literally had no concern. Look at it with me. Chapter 7, verse 23. Pharaoh returned and went into his house. This is after everything. All the water supply turned to blood. He goes back to his house and notice verse 23. Neither was his heart moved by this. I mean, this is just another day for him. We'll quickly see Uh, that that changes from plague to plague. Well, seven days later, according to chapter 7, verse 25, God brings plague number two, a plague of frogs. And as you'll see, and as we work through these 15 verses, basically you can divide it up by a series of messages. We come across several messages, and you'll see this unfold as we work through this text. So let's look at the first one. God's private message to Moses for Pharaoh. God's private message to Moses for Pharaoh. That's the first message that we see here. This message can be divided up first off with a command. Uh, We see that in verse one, look at it with me. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Let's stop there. So after seven days, God gives Moses a private message to then relay and give to Pharaoh. Notice here in verse one, there's two clear cut commands that God gives. First off, go to Pharaoh So Moses and Aaron are to go directly to Pharaoh in his presence, and not only are they to go to him, but they're supposed to deliver a message. Look at the second command, verse one, say to him. Now, what does God tell Moses to say to Pharaoh? Look at it with me, verse one. Thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. So through Moses, God speaks to Pharaoh, commanding him to let the people go so that they might leave and go out into the wilderness and worship God. Notice there's no ambiguity, there's no confusion, there's no lack of clarity. Yahweh is sending a crystal clear message to Pharaoh. And as we'll see, Pharaoh understands this, and he understands that Moses and Aaron are merely messengers that it is Yahweh that's ultimately working behind the scenes. 
So God tells Moses to go to Pharaoh and say these words. Again, they couldn't be more clear. So after this command, we see a preview. After this command, we see a preview. And again, this is all through conversation here. Notice this. This is a private conversation. Don't forget this. This is a private conversation between God and Moses. Verse 2. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite your whole territory with frogs. So Moses is to tell Pharaoh to let the people go, but if he refuses, there will be consequences. God says he will smite your whole territory with frogs. Now the word smite is a great word to underline in your Bible, if you're one of those that underlines or highlights. The word smite means to strike or to hit or to render a blow. By the way, it's because of this particular word that the Jews referred to the ten plagues as the ten strikes. That's how the Jewish community refers to the ten plagues. They refer to them as the ten strikes or even the ten blows. So the Egyptians were to be struck down ten times once we're done with this whole plague narrative. But in addition to that word, this word captures the physicality of Moses and Aaron's staffs. It represents the power of God as they stretch out their staffs and they stretch out their hands all across the land, which brings about the plagues or uh, the strikes. Look at verse 3. The Nile will swarm with frogs, which will come up and go into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and on your people and into your ovens and into your kneading bowls. So if you look at verse 3, another key word here. The word swarm, it's the same word used in chapter 1 of the Israelites increasing greatly and swarming all over Egypt. (laughs) So on one hand, the Israelites increased in a great number and they were all over the place. Here in chapter 8, verse 3, that same word is used to describe the swarm or the pervasive nature of all of the frogs that will come out of the Nile and take over Egypt. Now, this is a severe plague in the sense that hundreds of thousands of frogs will have left the Nile and spread across the ancient world. This is more on the gross and icky and annoying side of things, isn't it? Frogs are slimy, and a lot of frogs are really slimy. These frogs will make consistent noise. And it's interesting, if you do some research on Egyptians and their household, they did not wear shoes or sandals in their homes. Now, they may have switched that up once this hit. (laughs) Their beds, they weren't elevated like our beds, but they basically laid on the floor on, on a mat. Here we're told, again, in advance, God speaking to Moses, that frogs will take over the land. And notice where they show up. Verse 3 again. They will come into your house. They will be in your bedroom. They will be on your bed. They will go into the houses of your servants and on your people. 
And then they'll be even in the ovens and the kneading bowls. Now again, this isn't normal behavior for hundreds of thousands of frogs. Sure, it was probably the case during this time that a frog or two may have made its way into the homes. But not like this. It was not common for hundreds of thousands of frogs to leave the Nile River at the command of God and to invade everybody's homes. Again, look at verse 1 with me. And the Lord spoke to Moses, who is in control of every single frog? God. Look at verse 4. So the frogs will come up on you and your people and all your servants. Now, if you compare verses 3 and 4, verse 4 essentially repeats what has already been said, but it switches the ordering of the people affected by the frogs solely to demonstrate that all of the Egyptians would be affected. Not just one, not two, not a few dozen, but every single Egyptian would be affected. Every single Egyptian household would be affected. Douglas Stewart says, virtually no person, no place, or no thing would be immune from the frog infestation. So that is Yahweh's message that Moses is to deliver to Pharaoh. Uh, But notice the text, and you can look at it with me, it doesn't record Moses actually delivering the message. It doesn't record Moses actually delivering the message. In fact, once you get to verse 5, notice here in verse 5, The Lord begins speaking to Moses to give him a message that he is supposed to give to Aaron. The narrator, Moses, leaves out key details that we don't need to know. We just assume that once God had given Moses the message to give to Pharaoh, that Moses did what? He did it. He did it. Chapter 7, verse 16 Chapter 7, verse 20, God has already done this. Moses, you shall say to Pharaoh, chapter 7, verse 20, Moses and Aaron did exactly as the Lord commanded. So as we go out, or so as we go through these plagues, Moses, as he narrates this for us, he'll leave out certain details and insert other details as he finds necessary. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But that brings us to the next private conversation or private message, and that is God's private message to Moses for Aaron. So let's first look at the command. Verse five. Then the Lord, then Yahweh, said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff. So God says to Moses to say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff. You'll notice throughout all 10 plagues, this entire narrative that Moses and Aaron are instructed by God to stretch out their hands and their staffs over the land. And once they do that, that brings the next plague. Now, I don't want us to miss what's going on here. 
This is not a direct call to Moses or Aaron's ability to bring about the plagues, but this is in fact a direct call back to the power that God is using through Moses and Aaron. How do we know this? Well, if you remember all the way back to Exodus 4, what were the first two signs that God gave Moses to perform in front of the people, in front of the elders of Israel, and then in front of Pharaoh? The first sign was to do what? Turn the staff or the rod to a snake or a serpent. The second sign was for Moses to take his hand, put it in his cloak, pull his hand out, and his hand was withered, and then it was restored. So that's the connection that we need to make. Whenever we see Aaron's rod or hand being cast out over the land, or Moses' rod or hand being cast out over the land, and the plague coming forth, that's a direct call to Exodus chapter 4 to demonstrate that it isn't Moses or Aaron that have any supernatural power within them. It's not the rod. It's not their staff. It's not their hands. But it is the power of the Almighty God. In fact, Exodus chapter 4, verse 20, the staff is called the staff or the rod of God. The staff or the rod of God. Remember the context here. In the ancient world, and particularly with pharaohs or kings, staffs were signs of sim- they were signs and symbols of authority and power. So here, Moses and Aaron, they represent the power of God. They represent not the Egyptian gods, but the one true God. They are God's ambassadors. Turn over to chapter 14 real quick. Turn over to chapter 14. Let me just take this one step further. Chapter 14, when we get to the Red Sea, which we're some time away from, chapter 14, verse 21 Notice that at the parting of the Red Sea, verse 21, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And what happened? The sea parted. Now, if you turn over to chapter 17, a couple more examples. Chapter 17, notice the, the Israelites, the Hebrews, they're thirsty. Chapter 17, verse 6, God tells Moses to go strike the rock. And Moses did so when people had water. And then in a wonderful account in verses 8 through 16, when Moses' hands are raised up in the air above his head, the nation of Israel prevails over the Amalekites. When his hands are lowered below his head, his shoulders, what happens? Right, they begin to lose. Okay, so you can see the, the rod or this hand motif woven all throughout Exodus, it is a sign that God himself has all power and God himself is in control. Let's go back to chapter 8. So in this private conversation, God gives Moses a command to go tell Aaron to stretch out his hand. But now this conversation also gives us a preview of what's to come. Verse 5, so Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the streams, and over the pools, 
and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So here this verse tells us not only will frogs come directly from the Nile, but all nearby bodies of water will bring forth frogs as well. Rivers, streams, pools, ponds, you name it, frogs are coming out of it. Now notice here that Aaron is doing the work. Now this shows that Moses and Aaron will work as a unit. Now they are working together in tandem and that God will empower them to bring about redemption. Remember, Moses will act as God and Aaron will be his prophet. So of course, Moses stands as the key figure of the two, but Aaron plays a crucial role in these early chapters of Exodus, in particular the chapters that deal with the plagues. Now Moses and Aaron, we've talked about Moses and Aaron before, but it's key to understand that they are partners during this time. They are working together during this time. This is one of the reasons why we find in the middle of the narrative, Moses inserts a genealogy. Right? Remember we get to these genealogies of Moses and Aaron out of nowhere. <laughs> well, again, that's to show the prominence of Moses, to show the prominence of Aaron, how they will be utilized in this narrative, in the plagues, and they will continue to be used throughout the remainder of Exodus. Now, before we move on to the next message that we find in this text, I want us to sit back and think about what just transpired in verses 1 through 5. It is a record of a private conversation between God and Moses. Only God and Moses have and know that information. That is, until Moses reveals it to Pharaoh and until Moses reveals it to Aaron. And then, of course, it's later recorded in Scripture. Now, what this does is this places us as the readers in an elevated position. Let me say it this way and think with me and track with me on this. We as readers, anyone who reads the narrative has now been placed in an elevated position. We know more than everybody else in the story. (laughs) Look, Moses knows, but Pharaoh doesn't. He doesn't know what's going to happen. Moses does because God told him. Aaron doesn't even know the full details of everything yet because Aaron was only given a select message, a select portion of the information. So we, sitting here this morning, if this was our first time to read Exodus, and I'm probably right when I say all of us have read Exodus at some point, but if you're reading it for the first time, you know more than everybody. I mean, we were just told in a private conversation before it happened that they would go to Pharaoh And Pharaoh would refuse to let the people go, and frogs would enter all of Egypt. I mean, the plague hasn't even actually been described in real time yet. So we're sitting at an elevated position. I mean, Moses, the narrator, he could have given us this information any other way, but he chose to do it this way. Now, we have to ask why. Why why does he place us here? Why do we know more than Pharaoh? Why do we know more than Aaron? And why do we know more than anybody in Egypt? (laughs) Because at this point in the story, we do. Well, I think it plays into 
the, the theme of this section of Exodus, but even the larger picture. Remember, God is revealing himself in the book of Exodus. He is making his name known. Not only is he redeeming a people, but he is revealing himself. And in particular, if you go back to Exodus chapter 5, <clears throat> look at verse 2. Before all of this starts, chapter 5, verse 2, Pharaoh says, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let the people go? <laughs> who is the Lord? I, I, I don't know who he is. So the rest of the plagues in real time for Pharaoh, every successive plague is God doing what? Making himself known to Pharaoh. But us as readers, we of course weren't there in the actual event itself. So what we have as we sit in an elevated position knowing it all, that is still God revealing himself to us, not necessarily his power, but his omniscience. His sovereignty, the fact that he determines and decrees the future, he knows the future and he brings it to pass. I mean, he, he tells Moses, hey, look, go to Pharaoh. You're going to talk to him. He's not going to let the people go. By the way, tell Aaron, I need Aaron to raise up his staff and hand over the land and then the frogs are going to come on the earth. I mean, he just told them. I mean, we don't sometimes think about the plagues in a prophetic sense. Right? We just kind of think of it as a narrative. But right here, we're, we're told in advance, yeah, there's going to be frogs all up in your kitchen. It's true. That's exactly what we're told here. This creates suspense. Now, this is fantastic. You'll see this more as we go through the plagues. So, verses 1 through 5, private conversations, private messages. But in an instant we get to God's public message to Pharaoh in Egypt. So between verses five and six, we move from private conversation or a private message where God himself is telling Moses in advance. Now when we get to verse six, we jump right into the plague. It's amazing how he does that. God's public message to Pharaoh in Egypt, that is the second plague. Look at verse 6. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. So we are right in the middle of the plague now. Moses goes from telling us how the plague would come to fruition to actually dropping us right down in the middle of the frogs. Notice that Aaron stretches out his hand over the waters. Again, that's shorthand for his staff. We saw that in verse 5. And God brings frogs out of bodies of water to cover the entire land of Egypt. Great references to jot down to review this week. But Psalm 78, 45. Psalm 78, 45. And Psalm 105, 30. 78, 45. In 105.30, both of those psalms, the psalmists attest to the fact that the frogs covered the land of Egypt. I mean, that's key to know. The rest of Scripture affirms this miraculous event. The psalmist testifies to these realities. Now, it is true, and hear me on this, it is true that at certain times in Egypt, after the inundation of the Nile... 
when the waters recede, there are tons of frogs left on the land. That, that, that is true. That does happen. But that is not what's going on here. Three, verses 3 and 4 have already described this event as a devastating event. But even if this was natural phenomena, God does control nature for his purposes. God does control nature for his purposes. We'll get there in our study of Exodus. But what does God use to part the Red Sea? It tells us he brings about a strong wind. So God can miraculous work and he can use nature. But regardless, what we see here is not normal behavior in Egypt. So that's God's public message to Pharaoh in Egypt. The plague hits. So how does Pharaoh respond? That brings us to a fourth message. Pharaoh's personal message to Moses for God. Pharaoh's personal message to Moses for God. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord that he remove the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go that they may sacrifice to the Lord. Now that's interesting. I held off here on reading verse 7 for a reason. Notice verse 7. The magicians show up again, and what do they start doing? <laughs> Making more frogs come upon the land. So they just make the problem worse, right? Bless their hearts. They help no one. <laughs> but what's key, and track with me here, is that Pharaoh knows that they don't have the power to deal with this. How do we know that? Well, look at verse 8, what we just read. Then Pharaoh called for the magicians. No. Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron, and Pharaoh said, entreat, and notice he uses God's personal name, entreat Yahweh that he might remove the frogs. So verse 8 shows us the clarity in one sense with which Pharaoh is thinking. He understands that this is an event that is out of the ordinary. He clearly knows something miraculous has just happened because he immediately disregards the magicians, the sorcerers, and he asks Moses and Aaron to intervene to Yahweh on his behalf. Notice the word that Pharaoh uses, entreat. It means to plead, to intercede, to beg. Now, it could also be translated to pray. Isn't that wild? Pharaoh here, he stops and says, Moses, Aaron, go to Yahweh, go to your God and pray that this would end. Notice the subtle shift, by the way, in Pharaoh and his understanding of God. We looked at it, chapter 5, verse 2. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? I do not know the Lord. And then here, chapter 8, verse 8, call on the name of the Lord and remove those frogs. You see, the point of the plagues 
is so Pharaoh will recognize who God is and you see it slowly happening. And if you do, (laughs) if you do, if you call on God and he removes the frogs, notice what Pharaoh says, I will let the people go that they may sacrifice the Lord, sacrifice to the Lord. Look at verse nine, how Moses responds. Verse nine, Moses said to Pharaoh, the honor is yours to tell me. When shall I entreat for you and your servants and your people that the frogs be destroyed from you and your houses, that they may be left only in the Nile? So in light of all the details that Moses has left out of the story, It seems odd that he would include verse 9, which at face value is just a rehash of verse 8. There's a lot of repetition here. But but let me draw your attention to the fact that verse 9 testifies that God brought the plague and he has the ability to end it or reverse it. That's the message of verse 9. You see, the magicians, they show up in verse 7. The sorcerers, they show up in verse 7, and they just add to the problem. I mean, how dumb was that? (laughs) If they truly had the power to end the plague, they would have reversed it and cleared out the land. But here in verse 9, Moses says to Pharaoh, look, the honor is mine. I will entreat to Yahweh because he started the plague, and it is Yahweh alone who will end it. And I'd like to point out one more detail in this verse, that Moses is willing to pray for Pharaoh. It's amazing. He's willing to pray on behalf of Pharaoh and Pharaoh's servants and all the people there in Egypt. So when does Pharaoh want Moses to honor this request? Notice verse 10. He said, tomorrow. Tomorrow. Pharaoh, he he wants to wait it out. And he wants to wait it out to see if somehow in the next 24 hours what would happen that the frogs would just leave. (laughs) Tomorrow, Moses, tell Yahweh tomorrow. I also think there's a subtle hint here that Pharaoh understands that God can do whatever he wants whenever he wants. Moses, tell tell him tomorrow. Tomorrow would be best. (laughs) So we saw an entreaty or a prayer Next, we see a response. How does, how does Moses respond to this? Verse 10. May it be according to your word that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Such a clear and powerful statement from Moses. Pharaoh, you want the frogs to go away? I will make a petition. I will get on my knees and pray to God that it might be. And just so we are clear, I don't want you to think that I am special. I don't want you to think that Aaron is special. I want you to know that there is no one like our God. There is no one like our God. Moses continues, look at verse 11. The frogs will depart from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They will be left only in the Nile. 
So Moses says that after he requests God to stop the infestation of frogs, that the frogs will depart and only remain in the Nile. In other words, the the whole message of that statement is that everything will be restored. Everything will be restored. How did Moses know that God would respond this way? It's interesting to think about that. I mean, (laughs) you know, well, was Moses just really confident in God? I think so. I, I think absolutely he was confident. But I mean, Moses is making bold statements. Yeah, if you want me to go to God, I'll go to God and he'll, he'll do it. <laughs> so Moses is confident in God. But if you look back at chapter 4, verse 23, I believe this is why Moses knew that God respond, would respond this way. Chapter 4, verse 23 we are told in chapter 4, verse 23, that all of these plagues that were about to come upon Egypt, Pharaoh and the people, they were going to ultimately end with the killing of the firstborn son. I mean, we're not to that point yet. We're just talking about the Nile turning to blood, water turning to blood, and frogs coming all over the land. Moses knows that this isn't the end. Moses knows that things will greatly increase as it relates to intensification. Things will get worse. You can turn back to chapter 8. So Pharaoh's personal message to Moses for God. He's asking for help. That leads to the last message In this section, Moses responds with a private message to Yahweh, with a private message to Yahweh. So Pharaoh makes a request, Moses responds. First off, in verse 12, we see a prayer. We see a prayer. Then Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh. And Moses cried to the Lord concerning the frogs which he had inflicted upon Pharaoh. So Moses and Aaron depart from the presence of Pharaoh. And then Moses himself cries out to the Lord in prayer. Moses here is, he's playing the role of a mediator. And he requests God to restore Egypt by removing the frogs. Remember, that, that, remember back to the book of Genesis in our study. Remember that Abimelech and his crew, they went directly to Abraham and said, Look, Abraham, you are a prophet. You have a special and unique relationship to God. Go to God on our behalf. Notice here, Moses, in a similar way, is requested to go to God. Well, what happens? Moses goes to God in prayer. He makes a petition. He makes a request. Let's look at the response or the result. Verse 13, the Lord did according to the word of Moses. And the frogs died out of the houses, the courts, and the fields. So they piled them in heaps, and the land became foul. So God listened to the request of Moses, and he responded. The text tells us that the frogs died, 
including in the houses, courts, and fields. We're then told they were gathered up in piles and placed in heaps, and the number of frogs was so large that the land became foul. Can you imagine that? Again, this is another way of demonstrating that the plague extended beyond Pharaoh's courts and went into all of Egypt. The people piled up in heaps, frog after frog after frog. But you would think that one would expect Pharaoh to have a change in heart because exactly what he requested and exactly when he requested it to happen, happened. Go straight to Moses. Moses, tell God to do this tomorrow. And God graciously (laughs) fulfills that request because of Moses' prayer. But rather than acknowledging the one true God for salvation, Pharaoh saw that the frogs were gone and hardened his heart and refused to let the people go. Look at verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, that's sort of a lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, 1 John 2 there. When Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Notice that last expression, verse 15, as the Lord had said. This, this is all under the divine control of God. Now, of course, there's a lot we could say about Pharaoh and his hardened heart. He himself made his heart heavy. He made his heart stubborn. You could even translate the word strengthened. He strengthened his own heart against God. He loved his sin. He loved rebelling against God. He loved being God. He had a hatred for God's people. All of that was strengthened. As the Lord had said. Listen listen to these references. Chapter 4, verse 21, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Chapter 7, verse 3, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Chapter 7, 13, his heart grew hard, just as the Lord had said. Chapter 7, verse 14, his heart is hardened. Chapter 7, verse 22, his heart grew hard. And then our text today, he himself hardened his own heart. Now, what was God's aim in the plagues and hardening Pharaoh's heart? I think John Piper sums it up best. Why the plagues? Why the hardening of Pharaoh's heart? To so demonstrate his power, God's power that is, and glory that his people fear him and trust him always. But his aim was wider than that. It was also that his name be declared in all the earth. I mean, that is the point of the plagues. That is the point of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Exodus 5, that they might know who God is. Now I want to end our time going over just a couple books. Go to Joshua chapter 9. Joshua chapter 9. 
That is the goal of the plagues. That is the goal of hardening Pharaoh's heart. It is that God might be known and he might be revealed. In Joshua chapter 9, as the nation of Israel is long past the plagues and they're long past the wilderness wanderings and they begin to conquer the land and divide the land, in Joshua 9... The Hivites say to the Hebrews, watch this, look at verse 9. Your servants have come from a very far country because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we have heard the report of him and all that he did in Egypt. That's the message of Moses, Aaron, Pharaoh, and the frogs. It's so that they would and that we might know that there is no one like Yahweh God. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for the book of Exodus and this wonderful story, this wonderful narrative that drops us down into the middle of Egypt to see how so long ago you made yourself known to Pharaoh, to the Egyptians, to Moses and Aaron, and even the Hebrews, your people. And God, we are grateful today that we can know you as well through your son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins and rose three days later. Uh, May this story, may this narrative be mapped onto our own hearts where we live in light of the fact that we know God and that he knows us. That's in his son's name we pray, amen.